thank the Lord for last week's Global Impact Conference. The week before that, I started a series on prayers and introduction. I told you we're going to be studying the, the model prayer from Matthew chapter 6. And let me give you my thesis so that you'll know where I'm going as we cover the first line of the model prayer of the Lord's Prayer. Here's my thesis. We should cry out, Lord, teach us to pray as the disciples did because prayer energizes and compels us to honor the Lord, which leads to our joy. And prayer brings with it an awareness of the goodness of the living God. So it energizes, it compels, it crystallizes. Therefore, we should cry out, Lord, teach us to pray. So as the disciples observed the life of Christ, his energy, his compassion, the way he taught, the way he embraced and cared for people, the way he corrected people, they were amazed at his life. And one of the amazing issues is they came to him and they said, Lord, as we observe your life, please teach us to pray. Because if you look at the life of Christ, he was a man of prayer. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, the Lord saw the people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he turned to his disciples and he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord has just put down some incredibly difficult statements. The Sermon on the Mount is a very hard passage. It's just very difficult. And for example, he says in Matthew 6, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will bring these things into your life. You can trust him. And then the very next chapter, the very next verse, he says, uh, don't judge harshly. But, but judge with compassion and kindness. And in fact, he says, before you help someone with their issues, get the two by four that is protruding from your own eye so that you can help your brother get the speck of sawdust out of his eye. And then he says this, don't, don't throw what is sacred before swine. And then in the aftermath of all that, he says, and remember this, pray. He says, chapter 7, Verse 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and to him who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. So, so the, the disciples saw Jesus and his teaching and his compassion and his kindness and his energized life, and they wanted to imitate him. We've given a disciple, I've given a definition of a disciple, which comes from something called the Vine Project. It says this, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who is constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. So a forgiven sinner by the work of the cross. And as you see the glory of the cross and you see the life of Christ, you want to live a life that is as focused and energized and committed as the life of Jesus. And as you read the Gospels, there is an engagement and then a disengagement. You go from village to village and you teach and you heal and you cast out demons but then you go to the mountains and you pray for a while. Or you, you get in a boat and you go across to the other side. And, 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 and they saw this engagement, disengagement, and they saw the passion, the power. And so they came to the Lord and they said, Lord, teach us 
to pray. So I'm, as I've done this, I'm saying, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach us to pray. So a few issues, just three statements. Number one is, is this, is prayer is difficult. It just is. But in part, it's difficult because we live in the year 2020. It's difficult because in part, we, we have mobile devices that ping and we have 24 hour seven news sources and we have cable, we have this and we have, and we have podcasts. And, 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 and so we're constantly going from issue to issue and educators tell us that because of that, there is a, a, a constantly shrinking attention span. You read historically about the Lincoln-Douglas debates and those debates lasted for two and two and a half hours and people were enthralled with them. Imagine that, two, two and a half hours. Our attention span. So, so, so we read Psalm 46.10 that says, be still and know that I am God. And we go, wow. So part prayer is hard because we're not still. The second reason thing I want to say is that, is that we, we find prayer hard because we make it hard. Jesus said with great simplicity in Matthew 18, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest among them. And Jesus called a child into their midst, and he said, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And, and children come messy. Children come with clarity. They come with honesty. They come with needs. So I think prayer is something you slip into throughout the day. You take a, you take a block of two or three minutes as you hear something, as you go down the road, and you say, Abba, Father, and you pray for people. Or you, you hear something, and you just stop, and you say, Almighty Refuge, Almighty King of Glory, I commit this to you. But it's, 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 it's a way of living. And then the third thing is that we sometimes fail to praise because we, we don't embrace the mystery of prayer. I mean, some of you are rightfully so. Understand that God is the King and He rules everything. We say that God is sovereign, and He is. But at the same time, I would say in God's the mystery of God's providence, that he uses prayer to change us, to change people, to change things around us, and to mold us to his character. And how do you explain the kingly rule of the triune God with prayer is a mystery. And if you refuse to embrace either wing of that airplane, you go into a tailspin. So I look at life of the Lord, his pattern of engagement, disengagement, his healing, his travel, his compassion, the way he corrected and cared for people. And I say, I need the sacred rhythm that marked the life of Jesus, including the Sabbath rest, which is a day of joyful worship and rest. And I need to, like the disciples, cry out, oh, Lord, teach me to pray. And so they, they came to Christ and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he starts off with this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But what's interesting here is I look at this, is that, is that the praying in the Bible is incredibly God-centered. You rarely see people jump into, oh, Lord, do this for John or do this for Susan or do this for, no, no, no. You begin with quieting your soul and thinking, I need to concentrate on the character and the goodness and the mercy of God. So Jesus, in teaching us to pray, says, you start off with this, Abba, Father, Heavenly Father. It's a focus on the fact that God loves us and cares for us. He is our Abba, Father. I got to get hold of that. So a personal story. I uh, grew up in a small town 
with a wonderful mom and daddy. Wonderful. And I played sports in high school. And my four years of high school, my parents never missed a ball game, ever. So we would, in football, we'd play on Friday night, high school, play basketball Tuesday and Friday night. But Friday night, you know, after the game was over, guys would say, hey, unless there was a big dance, I always, you want to go get a hamburger, milkshake, what do you want to do? I said, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to go home. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go home. And uh, which really disappointed all the girls that want to go out with me on Friday night. <laughs> and so you say, well, uh, here's the reason I went home. I went home because uh, my mom and my dad were sitting up waiting on me. I'd hit the door before cell phones. And my mom would say, do you want pancakes or grilled cheese? The milkshake's made and it's in the fridge. And they'd sit there and they'd go over my game with me. And they would wander aloud why Division I schools were not standing in line to recruit me. They thought I was a great athlete. I was not. And if they ever corrected me, they gave me 25 reasons that I was better than that. Listen, who would not go home to that? That's a whole lot better than eating barbecue with a bunch of your teammates. I loved it. And I, I, I thought about that, and, and I thought, see, prayer is coming home to the embrace and the reception of Abba Father. The front light porch is on. The grilled cheese is being made. The milkshake is in the fridge. So Jesus says, you know, if you're going to pray, you pray to Abba Father, your dear Father. The one who loves you. One of the most incredible statements in the Bible that you can miss is, is in Matthew 7, where, where Jesus is talking. And he just, it's just, every time I read it, I just go, wow. He says, listen, parents, if your son asks for a fish, you would never give him a snake. If he asks for bread, you would not give him a stone. And if you then... Though you are evil parents, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Wow. I mean, look at these. There's not a parent here, unless they're psychologically really imbalanced, who would not die for their kids. That is the ultimate no brainer for me. Easy. Easy. And yet Jesus looks at these well-intentioned parents from a culture that embraced the family hugely. And he said, compared to Abba Father, you guys are evil. And you still give, you give good gifts. You really do. But, but still, compared to Abba Father, you are how much more? How much more? Will your Father in heaven give, give, good, give good gifts to those who run to him? It's an amazing statement. So, so prayer is coming home to Abba Father. And there's some people here this morning who've never come to the reality of God through the cross of Christ. We invite you to come. Others here have kind of slipped away and talked to a guy yesterday. They just slipped away. Come home. Come home. For the 10th time or the 100th time or the 10,000th time. Come home. 
And I, I, I talk to people about this frequently, and they, they'll say to me, they'll say, you know, I, I just have a very difficult time getting my, 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 the concept of God the Father in my brain because, regrettably, I didn't know my daddy. Never knew my dad. Or my, my dad abandoned us. Or I had a dad who physically or emotionally abused me. And it breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. And so when I leave a conversation like that, I find myself pleading, Holy Spirit, do it in overdrive. Because this is what Jesus, the, the, Paul says about the work of the Spirit. He, he says, Romans 8, for you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. So, so he says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And, and so see, we don't have to psychologically or by way of narrative, introduce people to a gracious Father. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When you're saved by the blood of Jesus and you come to faith in Him, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And one thing the Holy Spirit does is He causes you to cry out, Abba, Father, because you see the beauty of the Father in the cross of Jesus. So, so come home. Come home to the reality and the glory of the God who restores and heals and forgives and embraces. The front porch light is on, the cheese sandwich is being made, and the milkshake is in the fridge. Who does not want to come home to that? It's so sweet. So, just two points this morning. Why does the Lord begin the prayer with this little statement? And I'm going to go to a couple of confessions of faith. He does this to excite, I love that word, excite or awaken in our hearts, believers, a childlike trust and confidence and joy that through the cross of Jesus, God has become our Father. To excite in us, awaken a worship, a glory and a gladness that because of the shed blood of the cross, God has become our Father. That in the, in, the, in the fullness of time, God became a man and born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Galatians 4, that there was an eternal council of redemption where in the fullness of time, the living God would become a man and live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sin. So it awakens in us the fact that we have a glorious Father because of the work of the cross. It, it, it awakens joy. I so enjoy, on Friday morning, uh, after man to man, I, I'll meet my wife here and we'll exchange some things. And then I had the privilege of, of taking my two and a half year old son to the pre, pre, uh, preschool. Yeah, pre, preschool. And we go in there and there are parents all over the place and they're loving their kids and saying goodbye, here's this and this. So they're, they're there. Four hours later, I pick him up and they give me his art project, which is, you know, art's got to be fine very broadly for a two and a half year old, but we, I, it's, it's precious, it's precious. I take it home to his mom and we act like it's, you know, it's a, 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 a Da Vinci that's just been discovered and here we have, we have it right here. 
And the parents are embracing and they're loving, they're caring. I thought, this is so much fun. And yet, I go back to this statement that through Christ and the blood of the cross, the greatness of the Father and His love for us is clearly revealed. Family Adoption Sunday is in two weeks. It's appropriate that we have this sermon now to think. We want to honor and applaud those who reach out and embrace people. That's what God has done for us in the gospel. We've been made children of God not because of, a John 1 says, a father's will or a human decision, but by the mercy of God. J.I. Packer, my favorite theologian of the last century, still alive, still doing great. And he's an old dude. If this was fantasy football and you're drafting a theologian of the last century, J.I. Packer would be your first choice. He's the man. He wrote a book called Knowing God, and he said this in Knowing God, and I think he's just all got it. It's in the worship guide. He says this, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands the Christian faith, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship. Now hear this. And his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. We're to cry out, Abba, Father. And so Packer says if he's going to boil down the New Testament faith into a, a short, pithy sentence, it would be this. It would be adoption through propitiation or the covering of the cross. We are adopted in the family of God by the blood of the cross when Christ took our place. And he says... That is what you do, and that is what you glory in. See, sin separate us from God, but God made a provision through the sacrificial system that foresignified what the Lamb of God would do on the cross, and therefore the promise has been fulfilled, and it should excite in us a childlike reverence and trust in God, confident in the fatherly goodness of God. There's a book entitled Pilgrim's Progress. I've referred to it before, written by a guy named John Bunyan. He was in prison for 11 years in England because he refused to not preach the gospel. That's why he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, If you do a Google search, it's the second most well-sold book in the English-speaking world other than the Bible. Bunyan lived in the 1600s. And so this is an allegory about a guy named Pilgrim and how he loses his sin at the cross and then it traces his walk of faith until he crosses the river and goes into heaven. So he's on his pilgrimage to heaven and he's got a friend named Hopeful. And as they go along the the king's highway, they veer off because they're not paying attention and they end up being captured by someone named Giant Despair. Big giant. And he throws them in Doubting Castle. See an allegory. And this is on a Wednesday. And so he locks them in chains and he puts them into Doubting Castle. And on Thursday he comes out and he beats them. And on Friday he comes out and he beats them again. On Saturday he comes out and he says, you're not getting out of here, you need to commit suicide. That was on Friday. Anyway, then his wife, whose name is Diffidence, says, show them the bones of all the people that have been slaughtered through the years. And so he takes them out in the courtyard and there are bones everywhere of people that he's killed. And he says, this is going to be your end, so you should commit suicide. And he beats them again. 
So on Sunday morning, Bunyan writes. On Sunday morning, Pilgrim says, what a fool I have been. And his friend Helpful says, what do you mean? He says, there is in my pocket a key. And with this key, I can unlock any lock that any giant, giant despair, any other giant puts upon our ankles or our wrists or any door that's locked to us. The key is called promise. And his hopeful says, well, dude, give it a whirl. That's the modern day translation. And so, and so he takes the key and he, boom, unlocks his wrist. Boom, unlocks the ankles, takes care of hopeful, walks up, sticks into the door. And it says the door flew open and they walked in liberty and giant despair could not follow them. And what Bunyan is saying is that, that when you've, and we all deal with depression at times, some people very difficult times. I know that. That when you find yourself in a place where you, you go, I, I don't know, I don't know. You, you don't run to yourself. You run to the promise of the scripture. And you run to the Abba, Father, goodness of God. And you said, here is the key. Here is the promise. Here, this is what gets me going. And I read this. And I really get energized. And I think, Lord, you have given us the key. And part of the key is, according to confessions, confidence. And the fatherly goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, do you pray, dear Father, Almighty Father, the one who is good. Recently read a book entitled The Power of Bad, subtitled How Negativity Affects and Rules Us and How We Can Rule It by two guys. One guy is named Tierney, who writes for the New York Times, another is named Baumsteyer, who used to teach at Penn and now teaches at the Queensland University in Australia. Let me just read two paragraphs. The power of bad. Their whole thesis is this, that people run to bad news. And, and they, they keep asking, why? They don't give the answer. I, we know why. People run to bad news because we're sinners. <laughs> and when they talk about how to break the power of bad, they're, they're, their steps are okay, but fall far short of what we have here. Let me, let me just read a few things. Two paragraphs. All, all day long, the power of bad governs our moods and guides our decisions. It drives news and shapes public disc discourse as is exploited. These are secularists. By journalists, politicians, marketers, bloggers, social media vipers, internet trolls, and every, anyone else seeking attention on our screens. The past quarter century, this book was released in January of this year. The past quarter century has been extraordinarily peaceful by historical standards, but people have witnessed more battles and bloodshed than ever before because of the media. The rate of violent crime in America has plummeted, but most people think it has gone up because they see it so often in the media. The steady diet of bad news makes people feel helpless. They start catastrophizing their personal worries and despairing at the state of the world. New paragraph. They tried their hand at humor. Listen. As life expectancy increases, we use our extra time to click on headlines like, quote, why your diet is killing you, close quote. No matter how happy your home life, you're assailed with articles such as seven signs your partner is cheating or five tips to prevent your child from being abducted. Next paragraph, until we learn how to override the disproportionate impact of bad, it distorts our emotions and our view of the world has made the luckiest people in the world feel cursed. 
For thousands of years, the normal human lot was, to, was a short life of hard toil on a farm. In 1950, most people in the world subsisted on less than $1 per day and didn't know how to read, but today the rates of extreme poverty and youth illiteracy are below 10% and still falling. That's amazing. We are richer, healthier, freer, and safer than our ancestors could have ever hoped to be, yet we don't enjoy our blessings. We are more unhappy than our great-grandparents. We prefer to heed and to vote for the voices telling us that the world is going to hell. Instead of seizing opportunities and expanding our horizons, we seethe at injustices and dread disasters and all too often respond by making things worse. Arianna Huffington. You've heard of her. You've read the Huffington Report. She started out a few years ago as a conservative, then she became liberal. But she, she didn't really call Thrive in a book on how to sleep better. She's 69. She, uh, two years, several years ago, was voted one of the most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. Forbes Magazine named her one of the top 100 uh, powerful women in the world two years ago. She came in at number 52. I don't know how they determined that. But she immediately adopted a theme. When you're number 52, you try harder. Joke. I, I, I said the last, nobody laughed last service. I thought, come on. You know, I her bumper, I don't care. I mean, whatever. It's good to laugh, just, especially when the joke's funny. But anyway, but she said this. She wrote this. She said she is astounded at the magic power of seeing things come together. I have I always had a deep love of the mystery of, mysteries of coincidence. See that? Coincidence. And how they give us tiny glimpses of the structure of the universe or even a glimpse into the fact that there is a structure at all. She spoke of the benefits of rejecting the idea that we live isolated and alienated in an indifferent universe. She says people who notice coincidences most tend to be the most confident. And at ease with life and every coincidence they experience, even the minor ones, confirms their optimism. And I read that and I thought, you know, she's a dear woman. I appreciate what she says. And, and, and we ask her about her faith. She says she's kind of a closeted Buddhist. She's spiritual, but she doesn't know how to define spirituality or define God. And, and here we are talking about, and I thought, this is nothing compared to what we have here. I mean, come on. I mean, Jesus says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Think about that. All, Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Psalm 40, the psalmist says, you've lifted me out of the miry clay. He's done that for us. He set us on a, on a place of refuge. We don't have to think about happy coincidences. We think there's a God who rules our life and we can be happy about it. So I, I, was, I was chagrined yesterday. I got to be honest. I, I was doing some web search and came across a, a, a statement made by Bill Mayer. Bill Mayer is, a, I think, a very... Interesting late night talk show host who is very bright. He comes from a total secular framework, but he's a pretty honest guy. And I enjoy reading what he says occasionally. I've never seen his show because I'm in bed for three hours by the time it comes on TV. So as far as late night, I will never see late night. Somebody says, you seen the Saturday Night? No, I haven't seen Saturday Night Live since I was 19 years old. So anyway, a long time ago. But Bill Mayer said this. He said, he said, he said this is of one. He says, "I'm over. I am sick of the overreactions to the coronavirus in our culture." 
Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be smart or wise, but here's a secularist. And I read this, and I was talking to some young people this week, and I said, it's kind of like the Y2K scare. And they looked at me and they said, well, we weren't born. I said, are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. But for those of you that are young and don't remember it, when we turned uh, as, as a culture to the year 2000, we were told planes will crash, computers will go down, water systems won't work, uh, there'll be massive failure of, uh, of, of the interstate, the world will come to an end. Babies will be born without teeth. I mean, they thought it was going to be horrible. And, and I, I remember one of the few times in my life I stayed up to see the New Year in because I thought, I want to see if life's going to end. So I don't want to wake up and life's over. So, so I stayed up and I remember, it, it, the, the, we say the ball dropped, the ball dropped. And I stood there and I went, lights are still on. Planes are still flying. Gravity still is here. There's still oxygen in I can breathe. I've talked to some of our physicians, and I appreciate That's why we're doing the, the, the elbow thing. A very dear friend said we should, we should prepare for the worst and pray for the best and do the right thing. I, I agree. But let me tell you this. You're not going to die till the living God says, come on up. You know? So that's why the Bible says you can go to bed and sleep at night. He gives to his beloved sleep. Rest. And I, I, saw, I saw Bill Maris in this, and I said, why isn't the evangelical church who knows the Abba Father goodness of God and the reality of Jesus and the power of the Spirit saying the same thing? Give me a break. We, but we run around saying the sky is falling ducky-lucky. Just do your best. Be prepared. But don't. I mean, you have a Father who loves you. I would preach the same sermon if we were in a communist, if I was in North Korea, I'd preach the same sermon or Cuba, or Iraq, or Iran, or Afghanistan, or Somalia, or Sudan. And we, we say, the Father has it. The Father has it. I was a young Christian. I'll never forget this illustration. I was in the Navigator ministry, and there's a guy named Leroy Imes, who was a great preacher. And he told a story. He didn't footnote where it came from. It's probably just anecdotal, but it worked. He said that in the 1840s, there was a ship going across the ocean from New York to London, and a terrible squall hit the ship, and the captain of the ship had his little girl on board, eight-year-old girl, and people had scrambled from their berths, and they were screaming in pain or screaming in horror what could happen, and the little girl was discomforted, and her, her nurse was with her, and she says, where's dad? Where's father? And the nurse said, well, he's, he's on the bridge. We said, what does that mean? Well, he's steering the boat. And she said, good, and she went back to sleep. She went back to sleep. The, the boat of your life is being ruled by Abba, Father, who loves you, and that gives us great confidence. You go back to Heidelberg Catechism, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Man, don't surrender this, that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has purchased for me peace with God, and not a hair can fall from my head without my Father's knowledge. Thanks be to God. So sleep. Okay, point number two. I'm over time. I'll do this fast. Point number two. I love the larger catechism. 
because it explains what it means. It says, what do we mean when we pray, hallowed be your name? And the answer is, in part, it says, when we pray, hallowed be your name, it shows that we have confidence. It teaches us that when we pray, we draw near with God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein. Now, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. And it's sweet. What this says and what the scripture says is that when we pray for God's name to be honored and esteemed and lifted high and for him to get the glory and the power and the worship, when we pray that and, and that happens, then our happiness and our usefulness and our joy are intertwined with that. And I'll say a statement by a guy named John R.W. Stott, who is a dear leader in the Anglican church in England. He said, pessimism should be repented of because it's inconsistent with knowing Jesus. So you see, see, when I pray, hallowed be your name, God, you get the honor, you get the glory, then when his name is supreme in my life, and then, 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 then my joy and happiness become intertwined and God gets the glory and I get the peace. I get the joy. You get the joy. You, you, you're in a difficult marriage. Pray, Lord, hallowed be your name in my marriage. I'm going to do the right thing. You're in difficult relationships. We all are. Boom, different job, difficult jobs, you do the same thing. Let me tell you, we need to realize that we're praying for our interest therein. I've been thinking about praying through, trying to memorize Proverbs 4, part of Proverbs 4. And Proverbs 4 talks about the path of the righteous is like, like the light of dawn. It goes brighter and brighter until full day. And then it says this in verse 20. It says, my son, I love Proverbs. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my, my sayings. Keep them within your sight. Let them be in your heart. Four. They are life to those who find them and healing to their flesh. Wow. They, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And the, the, the writer's saying, man, do this because it's, it's, it's healing to your flesh and it's life to your soul. I love Jeremiah 2 in the Old Testament where God is just saying, my people have, don't worship me. And God says, they've done two incredibly silly, unbelievable things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. I love that. And they've dug for them, secondly, broken sisters that cannot hold water. I mean, Abba Father is the fountain of living water, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. There's the fountain. And they've dug cisterns where there's some ism or some idolatry that can't really ever satisfy them. We've got the good stuff. That's treasuring Jesus. Which leads to our joy. I was, I was just, in Psalm 8 it talks about the glory of creation. I was thinking about it. And I, I thought, you know, I, why... For example, why in the world did God make basset hounds? I, I grew up with a basset hound. I loved that dog. I loved that dog. And you know, a basset hound is just, all they're good for is to make you happy. If you read the history of basset hounds, they'll say it was developed in France and they, they, were, they would hunt rabbits. The only rabbit a basset hound can hunt is someone that's almost dead. 
because they can only run 15 yards and they stop. So, the, so it's got to be a rabbit that really is almost dead. I mean, you never, the, the, a basset hound run against a rabbit, it's just not going to happen. And I just said, God, thank you for basset hounds. Short legs, long ears, droopy eyes, sweet spirit. Or you get out on this beautiful morning and you drive down the road or walk through your neighborhood and say, I, I'm, I'm not a trained aesthetic person, but there are 20 shades of green in my eyes. Why did God make all the colors? Why is it not just black and white? Because God is good and he wants us to love beauty. I love to eat. And uh, so so why did God give us taste buds and this delightful food? He could have just given us bags of gorp that had no taste that we could just consume. Boom. Why? Why do we have the ability to touch and embrace, except for the next few weeks? Um, you know, because God is good. And then you take this, the special mercies of God in those areas and you just multiply them 10,000 times. Say, why did God, in the fullness of time, in the council of redemption, determine that, it, that, that there would be a time when the living God would be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to die on the cross for their sins, that we might be called children of God because he chose to and because he's good. And, and in that, I should rejoice. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Well, let's pray. So, um, Heavenly Father, Precious Father, precious Lord, precious guide, uh, we come to you and we thank you that you are God Almighty and you're glorious and you're good. We thank you. We thank you that when you tabernacled among us, you, you said with great clarity how much more where your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask. And so, Lord, Give us clarity of thinking and give us insight to produce joy and hope and purpose and, and really a go-for-it spirit when it comes to loving folks in this life. We, we pray for our world today. and we, we pray for the ongoing discussions about the coronavirus. And Lord, we, we want to be wise. We want to be sensitive. We want to be smart. But do not let us run around with our hands up in the air screaming, we have no hope. I just thank you, Lord, that, that if you take me this week over some issue of health failing or whatever, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we can quote the old Anglican poet from the 1600s, John Donne, that says, O death, be not proud. Though many have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Death has no hold on us. Death only opens the gate to the glory called heaven. So we thank you that when we go to bed tonight, either we'll wake up refreshed or we won't wake up and we go to heaven. Both are good options. One is far superior. And we pray for our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our family members who do not have that hope, who, who go to bed at night wondering what's going to happen when I die. I pray they would see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus as Easter approaches in April. And there would be men and women who are converted to Jesus. 
in part because this talk about a pandemic has arrested their attention that life is indeed short. So help us to use this time to love people and to point them to Jesus. So bless us, I pray, and teach us, Lord. Teach us how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.